You're listening to a sermon from crckulaman.org. All right. Um, Matthew chapter 16, verse 21 to 28. From that time on, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and undergo great suffering at the hands of the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed. And on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, God forbid it, Lord, this must must never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are stumbling block to me, for you are setting your mind not on divine things, but on human things. Then Jesus told his disciples, if any want to become my followers, let them deny themselves and take up their, their cross and follow me. For those who want to save their life will lose it, and those who lose their life may, for my sake, will find it. For what will I profit them if they gain the whole world but forfeit their life? Or what will they give in return for their life? For the Son of Man is to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay everyone for what has been done. Truly I tell you, there are some standing here who will not taste death before they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Let me just pray. Heavenly Father, um, we just, uh, we're just here this afternoon and we are open to hear your word, to hear your will. Lord, our desire is that we... Uh, truly would put you at the centre of our life. And so, Lord, as we reflect on these scriptures today, we just invite you, Holy Spirit, to come and um, just impress upon us those things that you want to shift or change in our life, those areas of growth that you would like to to see us grow in, Lord. Um, I just pray that you would bring life to these words I share. May they be living words, anointed words, full uh, full of your power and your presence. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Being a follower of Jesus will disrupt your life. And if it doesn't, you're probably not a follower of Jesus. Jesus is quite clear. If we want to follow him, we are to deny ourselves, take up our cross and follow him. And so, of course, it goes without saying that if you do this, it's going to take some radical shifts in the way you think and manage your life. The usual human patterns and routines, if I was to uh, borrow from Romans 12 there, the, the patterns of the world, those usual human habits and routines will not be sufficient to enable you to be obedient to Jesus in this way. You are going to need new habits and new priorities. Now, people talk about life verses. If you heard people share about, you know, this is, you know, their life verse and those, those nice, encouraging, empowering verses that are just your go-to, you know. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. For I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord. For me, this is not one of those life verses. Um, this is a passage that I have wrestled with and churned over many times throughout my life. 
And if you are someone who, like me, has a tendency to be a little bit overzealous in life, all right, um, you'll risk taking this passage in a way that means you never quite feel like you're doing enough for Jesus. You never quite feel like you're sacrificing enough for Jesus. And this passage will risk becoming law, not grace. And so I almost bailed on preaching this sermon. Friday morning, I'm like, it's too hard. Can't do it. Anyway, I kept plugging away. Again, Saturday afternoon. No, it's too hard. Must be something else I can preach. Anyway, here we are. Here's why these two passages, I think, in Matthew are a bit tricky. And, of course, we had one of them read to us, and you've got the second one there from chapter 10 on your sheet. Here's why they are tricky. Because we have here Jesus talking about great violence and suffering that he will undergo at his crucifixion, plus the suffering and hardships his disciples will face as his followers. You'll see that in the chapter 10 passage. And then he tells us stuff about how genuine followers need to deny themselves, take up their cross and lose our life. And of course, the later experiences of these disciples and many Christians since then has been one of extreme suffering and persecution and hardships and martyrdom. So does this mean you and I must suffer to be genuine disciples too. Are these passages telling us that the real Christians are the suffering ones? Is Jesus saying that the only way we can truly be obedient to him is by denying all personal comforts, removing all pleasures from our life, living an extreme life of poverty and aestheticism, subjecting ourselves to the demands, the violence, the abuse or intimidation of others? Should we be pouring ourselves out in service to others to the point of of death or, or what feels like death, aka exhaustion, misery and having nothing left in us to give? Deny yourself. Take up your cross. Lose your life. I mean, aren't you glad you're in church this afternoon? This is, this is empowering stuff. I want to help us try and chew and digest this in a way that is maybe helpful for us in our modern Australian context without, without watering down the oomph of it too much. I think if we take hold of this passage appropriately, it's going to help us be salt and light. It's going to help us be those ambassadors. If we ignore it by saying, oh, it's just too hard, not even going to look at that one, or, or if we water it down to try and make it a bit more palatable to us, we, we risk losing uh, our saltiness and our distinctiveness, don't we? I think this is one of those passages that if we were truly to apply it to our lives, I think the church would look and function quite differently. The church of Christ would look and function very differently if we really took these passages seriously. 
So of course the, the rule to chewing is small mouthfuls at a time, isn't it? Otherwise you risk choking. So today's small mouthful from all of this will be kind of focused a bit on Matthew 16, 24, but I'm going to look at it in the wider context of those, those two passages there from chapter 10 and chapter 16. So just hold that in one hand and, and try and follow along the best you can. So Matthew 16, 24, then Jesus told his disciples, if any want to become my followers, let them deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. And when I look at the surrounding verses here and take the context of chapter 10 and chapter 16 together, we see a, a similar pattern emerging in both of those chapters. And I encourage you to take it home and, and, and read it and have a look for yourself to see this. But we see in both chapters, Jesus is talking about death and suffering. He's either referring to his own in chapter 16 or to that of his disciples in chapter 10. There's then a statement about denying. So in chapter 10, it's about whether we acknowledge or deny Jesus. In chapter 16, it's a challenge for the disciples to deny themselves. We then get uh, what I would call an upside-down consequence. Find your life you're going to lose it. Lose your life, you'll find it. And then the other thing we see in both of those chapters is that there's a, a, a future reward or some sort of repayment for us based on the choices we make about those above things. So talk of death and suffering, statement about denying, upside down consequence, future reward or repayment. Both of those chapters follow a, a quite a similar um, content there. Thought number one about this. Sin, suffering are things that we must contend with. It's no good pretending we don't have to contend with suffering in the here and now because until Jesus returns and sets things good, sets things straight for good, this is a broken world. We do need to deal with the implications of sin. But the, the, the good part of this is, is that we can deal with the implications of sin. Jesus has made a way for us to do this. So we're not without hope or power or freedom, but this hope and power and freedom that we have, is a, it's a shadow, it's a taste of what is to come. We are still waiting for the, the final, complete instalment. And so until Jesus returns, suffering does remain a real and present thing for us to navigate. Jesus actually reprimands Peter when Peter gets offended that Jesus, of all people, should have to suffer. In 1623, he turned to Peter, Jesus turned to Peter and said, get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block for me and you are setting your mind not on divine things but on human things. If um, one of your hashtag life goals is to avoid Jesus calling you Satan or a stumbling block, then this sermon is for you. Keep listening, all right? Um, if, if we were to jump into chapter 10, in Matthew 10, 16 to 23... 
You'll see there that Jesus warns his followers, you'll be like sheep in the midst of wolves. Beware. And then there's a a rather dire depiction of what awaits his followers. But in 10, uh, 26 to 31, Jesus says, but it's okay, don't fear, all that. And he gives an analogy about sparrows there. And then a reminder for us that despite all of the persecution, the hardship, the suffering, our heavenly father is still in control. He hasn't forgotten you. And then we come to chapter 10 verse 32 and Jesus says well well therefore you know in the context of all of this trouble and hardship that we face verse 32 everyone therefore who acknowledges me before others I will also acknowledge before my father in heaven but whoever denies me before others I will also deny before my father in heaven what does this talk of denying Jesus remind you of? Anyone hearing roosters crowing? Yep. I sat down one morning this week to have a little bit of a quiet moment with God before I got going for the day. (laughs) And all I could hear was a rooster crowing. I'm like, that's not very affirming for a quiet time, is it? What are you trying to say to me, Lord? (laughs) Um, Yeah, so... So we're reminded of the the, the rooster crowing when Peter, what does he do? He denies knowing Jesus. Now, so everyone who acknowledges me before others, I will also acknowledge before my Father in heaven. More literally, that phrase says, whoever is openly loyal to me, I will tell my Father that I am loyal to that person. When we show loyalty to a friend, it's because there's some sort of difficult or intimidating situation happening, isn't there? Otherwise, you don't really need to show loyalty. So maybe you've got a friend who's been bullied and you show loyalty by sticking up for them. You express your commitment to them as a friend, don't you? You know, you're like, I'm with them. Loyalty really only comes into effect when there's a challenge or a difficulty and it takes courage, doesn't it? to have loyalty. You have to choose sides. You have to make it known to the bully whose side you're on, even if it's going to cost you personally. Um, Because if you stand up for someone being bullied, well, what might happen next? Well, quite likely you're going to experience the same ridicule or rejection or harm. The bully is probably going to turn on you. So you have to choose. Who am I going to be loyal to first? Me, myself, or my friend? So thought number two is this. Denying ourselves is actually about being loyal to Jesus before ourselves. It's about loyalty. If you have a look there in chapter 10, Jesus makes it clear that the usual Jewish loyalties to family relationships, they're going to be disrupted. This is a challenge. Where do our loyalties lie? When we deny ourselves to follow Jesus, it will disrupt the normal course of your life and you'll have to live in such a way that Jesus and your commitment to him is on display in your life. And it will look different to the ways other people live. And it may result in ridicule, rejection, harm. 
It, it may result in the disruption of our usual uh, family or other loyalties. But the challenge for us, the question for us is, are you loyal to yourself first or Jesus first? Are you loyal to the customs and priorities of your society? Or are you loyal to the customs and priorities of Jesus? The issue of who we're loyal to goes straight back to the Garden of Eden, doesn't it? Just like Adam and Eve failed to acknowledge their loyalty to God when tempted by the serpent and they decided to put themselves and their perceived needs uh, first, we do the same thing too, don't we? When we walk the way of our self, when we're loyal to our self before God. It's the I will be in control. I will make choices that I think benefit me. I will decide what I want. I will decide what is good. I will decide what is right. So thought number three is self-loyalty is effectively the same thing as sin. And when we think about it in this context, self-denial becomes an expression of repentance. What's the classic definition of repentance? Turning. Turning away from anything that hinders our wholehearted trust in God. We turn away from sin. We turn away from self-rule. Repentance is not just about believing the death, that the death and resurrection of Jesus brings you peace with God. There will be a turning away, there will be a denying of those things in our former life that would stop us living wholeheartedly in trust of God. And so repentance is going to see us turning away from human, uh, the, the human sin way of living. It's going to see us turning away from old habits, old patterns, old routines, old priorities, so that we can live a life that is loyal to God, a life that is, in the words of 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, pleasing to God. We deny ourselves so that we can fully devote ourselves to being disciples of Jesus. It's about getting the flesh out of the way the flesh, which is what the Bible calls the corrupted self, the old self, the old sin nature. And so the things that we think we need, which are usually something along the lines of recognition, status, admiration of others, wealth, career advancement, maybe celebrity, beauty, possessions, even spiritual success, because even Spiritual ambition can become idolatrous for us, can't it? All of those things that we think we need to live a happy, meaningful life, we intentionally put them aside, we intentionally turn away from them. Now this is the way both of salvation, but I think Jesus is telling us here that this also is the way of discipleship. So thought number four is that we deny ourselves by repenting and turning to Jesus daily, daily. The Luke chapter 9, 23 version of this particular verse says that we should deny ourselves and take up our cross daily. 
It's an ongoing choice. It's an ongoing decision that followers of Jesus make to keep turning away. Keep turning away from their old life. Keep making choices that express our obedience and our allegiance to Jesus. It's not a one-time thing. It's a whole-of-life thing. 1 Thessalonians 4.1 says, We taught you how to live in a way that will please God, and you are living that way. Now, we ask and encourage you in the Lord Jesus to live that way even more. Even more. Our confession must be, I truly have been crucified with Christ. My old flesh truly does, does no longer live, but it's now Christ who lives in me. It's Galatians 2.20. We deny us, when we deny ourselves, we're applying this truth of Galatians 2.20 to our daily living. My old sin self and priorities and allegiances have been put to death and I will live this new kind of life, this life of faith, this life of trust, this life of discipleship to Jesus, one that is loyal to him, one where he is my first priority. It's Jesus at the centre. I'm so glad we sung that song earlier, Jesus at the centre. I was going to tell Judy hey, could you do that song? I thought, no, she's had a big few days, I won't. And she did it anyway, so thank you, Lord. Uh, really, it's, this is what this is all about. This is what denying the self is all about. This is what being loyal to Jesus is all about. It's, it's Jesus at the centre of it all. Being um, th th This declaration, if we mean it, will change the rhythms and routines of your daily life, won't it? Being a follower of Jesus would disrupt your normal life. If it doesn't, you're probably not a follower of Jesus. So the result of all this will be that we love Jesus more than ourselves. That's a good thing, don't you think? Jesus will be more important to us than other people or things. We'll give a lower priority to our desires. Jesus and others will be of far greater interest to us than our own ambitions and goals. And we will trust in the way of Jesus even when it is countercultural and doesn't make sense to our human minds. Now, all of this is not to deny us personal fulfilment or joy. It's just that the source of our personal fulfilment is going to shift. No longer will it be self-pleasure. No longer will it be me advancement. It's going to become God-pleasure. Jesus' advancement. So to return to our quandary at the beginning, how does suffering and difficulty and hardship relate to the call of Jesus for us to deny ourselves and take up our cross? I think when Jesus warns about the coming suffering and persecution for him and his disciples, I see it as a statement about what will happen because of how the world is, it's a broken world, isn't it? It's an observation of the way things are rather than a declaration about the way things should be. It's a subtle difference, but it's a significant one. It's an observation about the way things are, broken world, stuff's going to happen, rather than a declaration about the way things should be. 
Denying ourselves is not a call to inevitable suffering. Rather, it's going to enable us to handle suffering when we're faced with it. When our self has been crucified with Christ, it no longer worries about its rights, its achievements, successes, pleasures, cultural norms. So suffering in the sense of humiliation, rejection, deprivation, difficulty, missing out on things, it's no longer a powerful thing for us to fear or avoid at all costs. We don't seek out suffering as a means of proving ourselves as genuine disciples, but genuine disciples may well find themselves experiencing suffering in the here and now. And denial of self will enable us to faithfully follow Jesus regardless of the good or the bad things that happen to us. Of course, the comfort for us, for all faithful followers of Jesus, is to know that there will be a future day of justice where Jesus will balance the scales and he will reward us according to the choices and the actions of our life in the here and now. So if you are wondering, well, am I loyal to Jesus above myself? Because it's a tricky thing to have that sort of self-insight, isn't it? Am I loyal to Jesus above myself or or is my old sin-focused self-nature still calling the shots in my life? I think a good way of reflecting on this comes from a quote by Dallas Willard in his book, Renovation of the Heart. He says, when we are dead to self, the fact that I do not get what I want does not surprise or offend me and it has no control over me. Have a think, what, what happens when you don't get what you want? What's your response? How do you feel about that? What do you do? When someone interrupts your plans or, or, um, or when something that's important to you gets, gets interrupted or denied, what's your response? What's important in your life? Of course, you can answer that particular question by looking at how you spend your day. And again, as I've said each sermon for the last little while, do a habit audit. Probably if you haven't done one by now, you're not going to, but do one. Reflect on it. What's truly important to you? You'll know by looking at the habits and the routines of your life. The Apostle Paul knows what it means to deny himself. 1 Corinthians 4, chapter 4, verse 3. He says, I care very little if I'm judged by you or any human court. Indeed, I don't even judge myself. Or Philippians 4, 11 to 12. He says, for I've learned to be content with whatever I have. I know what it is to have little and I know what it is to have plenty. In any and all circumstances, I've learned the secret of being well-fed and of going hungry, of having plenty and of being in need. The fact that the Apostle Paul doesn't get what he wants does not surprise or offend him and it has no control over him. He knows what it is to deny himself, take up his cross and follow Jesus. 
So as I said, over the last few sermons, I've challenged us to, to stop and reflect on these habits and routines in our life and, and, and to, to get us to reflect, are they helpful for us as disciples? Do our daily routines free us or frustrate us? If we truly want to deny ourselves, take up our cross and follow him, or if we truly want to break away from the patterns of the world and to be transformed by the renewing of our mind, Romans 12, what is going to help us to do these things? A book by Charles Duhigg, The Power of Habit, he talks about this thing called keystone habits. I just want to read to you a little story that he shares in this book. This is about Michael Phelps, the uh, American Olympic swimmer. There he is. Looks like he's achieved a bit in his lifetime, doesn't he? So, keystone habits. When Michael Phelps' alarm went off at 6.30am on the morning of August 13, 2008, he crawled out of bed in the Olympic village in Beijing and fell right into his routine. He pulled on a pair of sweatpants and walked to breakfast. He had already won three gold medals early that week, giving him nine in his career. He had two races that day. By 7am, he was in the cafeteria eating his regular race day menu of eggs, oatmeal and four energy shakes, the first of more than 6,000 calories he would consume over the next 16 hours. Phelps's first race, the 200-metre butterfly, his strongest event, was scheduled for 10 o'clock. Two hours before the starting gun fired, he began his usual stretching regime, starting with his arms, then his back, then working down to his ankles, which were so flexible they could extend more than 90 degrees, farther than a ballerina's on point. At 8.30, he slipped into the pool and began his first warm-up lap, 800 metres of mixed styles, followed by 600 metres of kicking, 400 metres of pulling a boy between his legs, 200 metres of stroke drills, and a series of 25-metre sprints to, the, uh, to elevate his heart rate. The workout took precisely 45 minutes. At 9.15, he exited the pool and started squeezing into his LZR racer a bodysuit so tight it required 20 minutes of tugging to put it on. Then he clamped the headphones over his ears, cranked up the hip-hop music he played before every race, and he waited. Phelps had started swimming when he was seven years old to burn off some of the energy that was driving his mum and teachers crazy. When a local swimming coach named Bob Bowman saw Phelps's long torso, big hands and relatively short legs, which offered less drag in the water, he knew Phelps could become a champion. But Phelps was emotional. He had trouble calming down before races. His parents were divorcing and he had problems coping with stress. Bowman purchased a book of relaxation exercises and asked Phelps's mum to read them aloud every night. The book contained a script. Tighten your right hand into a fist and release it. Imagine the tension melting away. That tensed and relaxed each part of body, Phelps's body before he fell asleep. Bowman believed that for swimmers, the key to victory was creating the right routines. Phelps, Bowman knew, had a perfect physique for the pool. That said, everyone who competes at the Olympics had a perfect um, muscular figure. Bowman could also see that Phelps, even at a young age, had a capacity for obsessiveness that made him an ideal athlete. Then again, all elite performers are obsessive. 
What Bellman could give Phelps, however, what would set him apart from other competitors were habits that would make him the strongest mental swimmer in the pool. He didn't need to control every aspect of Phelps's life. All he needed to do was to target a few specific habits that had nothing to do with swimming. All right, notice that, these habits that had nothing to do with swimming. And everything, um, and everything to do with creating the right mindset. He de de designed a series of behaviours that Phelps could use to become calm and focused before each race and to find those tiny advantages that, in a sport where victory can come in milliseconds, would make all the difference. And uh, he gave Phelps a series of um, visualisation strategies that... Um, that he called videotapes that Phelps would sort of play over in his mind and play while he's running. And um, during the races, when Bowman ordered Phelps to swim at a race speed, he would shout, put in the videotape, and Phelps would push himself as hard as he could. It almost felt anticlimactic as he cut through the water. He had done this so many times in his head that it now felt rote, but it worked. He got faster and faster. Eventually, all Bowman had to do before a race was whisper, get the videotape ready, and Phelps would settle down and crush the competition. Once Bowman had established a few core routines in Phelps's life, all the other habits, his diet and practice schedules, the stretching and sleep routines, seemed to fall into place on their own. At the core of why these habits were so effective, why they acted as keystone habits, uh, was something known within academic literature as a small win. So keystone habits. Keystone habits is, is what sort of trains and, and, and sets us up to, um, to then be able to succeed in, in, in other areas of our life. And, and, and what I want us to do is, as it relates to our discipleship of Jesus is I want us to explore what I think we could call keystone habits, things that if we do them... They will transform other areas of our discipleship. They're spiritual habits. And, and sometimes you might have heard them called spiritual disciplines or spiritual practices. Now, the interesting thing about that race day that I, I, I read there about Michael Phelps is that particular day when he went through all his routines, all of his rituals, all of his habits that he does before each race day is that things did not go to plan for him that day. When he dived in, his goggles started filling with water and he couldn't see. Now, for most Olympic swimmers, that would cause panic. That would be a disaster. However, all of those keystone habits, all of those routines and rituals that were in place already in his life enabled him to not just make it through that race, but he actually gained a new world record at the end of that race. And it was all because of these habits, these routines, these rituals that he had in place that sort of surrounded his life, surrounded his, his, his physique and his mindset as it came to swimming that enabled him to when things went, you know, hit disaster point, that he was able to not just... Uh, withstand that disaster, but to actually exceed and excel through it. So for us, faithful discipleship, it's not going to guarantee that there is no uh, suffering or difficulty that we face. But 
I want to encourage you that if you have the right habits and the right routines in place, if you have those keystone habits in place in your life, when problems do strike, you won't panic, you won't lose faith. Instead, those habits are going to kick in and you will be amazed at what God can do in those times of trial and in those times that aren't trial as well. Um, I've chosen a habit that I think is going to help us to grow in the area of being loyal to Jesus, denying ourselves, and it's it's the, the, the spiritual practice of simplicity. Now, what I've done is I've put some resources for us on our website. I'm not going to tell you about how to access that now. I'll tell you about that over our meeting and I'll, I'll actually show you, or if you're listening to the recording, I'll, I'll pop a link there. Um, but I, I want to encourage us to, as a church, start incorporating some of these keystone habits into our life because they're going to make us stronger. They're going to equip us to uh, be followers of Jesus that... that um, well, we might not win gold medals, but I think we'll kick some goals in the kingdom of God. Hey, what do you reckon? Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we just, um, yeah, we just are genuinely um, hungry to grow in our discipleship, to mature as believers. Uh, Lord, we, we do want to be loyal to you above ourselves. That is our heart's desire. And so, Lord, would you just... Um, uh, enable us to do that. We, 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 we just ask that where there are blockages or um, issues with um, us really outworking that in our life, Lord, would you show us how to make changes? Would you um, convict, encourage? Would you just lead us onward in this area of our life, Lord? Father, I pray that as a, as a church, as we begin to engage in some of these keystone habits, these spiritual practices, Father, I just pray that there would be a great, abundant uh, fruitfulness in our life, a fruitfulness as it comes to character, a fruitfulness as it comes to our maturity and our faith, a fruitfulness as it comes to our spiritual gifts and, and, and evangelism and outreach and mission and ministry, Lord. Father, grow us, transform us, and, and use us um, uh, for your kingdom purposes, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.